0: Talking baseball, Klazuski Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, Casey was winning, Hank Aaron was beginning. One Robbie going out, one coming in. Kiner and Midget Cadell, The Thumper and Mel Parnell. And Ike was the only one winning down in Washington. Well, I'm sorry,
1: but I can listen to that song from start to finish. I don't know what it is about that song. I just love it. And that's why you're hearing it on this show. Welcome, everyone, to episode eight of Dirty Kurt's Dugout. This is Kurt Bavacqua. And Dirty Curts Dugouts all over social media. So make sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And please share our content with your followers. Episode 8. Never thought we'd get here. And tell me it ain't so, Robinson Cano. Steroids. It's rumored. And by the time we drop this show, which is only going to be in a few hours, the announcement might have been made. Now, how about this? 80 games. He's already on the DL, but he's getting paid when he's on the DL. But because of the caught steroid use, 11 million bucks out of Robinson Cano's pocket. Woo, baby. Can't wait to tell Bobby Gritsch this story. Yes, Bobby Gritsch is our guest. Six-time All-Star, four-time Gold Glove winner. We're going to talk to him about that because I'm trying to figure out what happened all the other years. Twice in the top ten of the MVP voting in 1974 and 1979. He led the league in slugging average in 1981. Led the league in home run the same year. And he's the first player elected to the Los Angeles Angels Hall of Fame. My friend and great, great baseball player, Mr. Bobby Gritch. Bobby, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us.
2: Yeah, my pleasure, Dirty Kurt. Good talking to you as always, buddy. And, uh, you know, I like the way you played the game. You're always dirty. You were diving. You were sliding. You were coming up with dirt all over your Uniform, draft things on your yeah, chest. Yeah, we're you're, we're gonna you're talk. You were my hero, man. You're we're my go,
1: hero. We're gonna talk about uh, getting down and dirty a few different times, maybe in a few minutes. But uh, <laughs> it, it, I gotta know what happened in the 13 years between 1973 and 1985. There's only four gold gloves in that time. You set an all-time major league fielding record with a nine ninety five fielding percentage in 1973, and in 1985 you set your own record higher with a 9.97 percentage. How do you only win four gold gloves in that period of time when you're such a good fielder? Well,
2: it was, uh, you know, it was done by voting. And it was voted by the coaches and the manager of each team. And they would vote typically like the first part of September – Uh, I remember walking into a locker room someplace and there was a stack of ballots that the coaches had to vote for the gold glove. And it was like the first week of September. And there were no stats to accompany what the players were doing during the season. And I often wondered, you know, what was the sense of that award? Um, Because I had a great year in 83. Uh, I think I made three errors or something. I don't know what it was. It was an all time fielding record. Although, I didn't play in like over uh, you know I didn't play like in 140 games or something. I don't you might check the stat on that. I think I played like 125 games or something. I was I was uh, injured part of that part of that uh, year, but anyway, the the point is is that the coaches and managers never had access to fielding stats, and it was kind of voted on reputation and what they saw, and so uh, I was always um, skeptical of that because I was six two. And uh, I wasn't particularly quick on my feet, but I, I was a smart ball player. I knew the opposing hitters. I kept track of them. I knew who did what. I watched every single pitch from our pitchers when the catchers called it. I got jumps. I cheated 10, 15 feet sometimes on slow curveballs to left-handers to my left and vice versa to my right. I had more range than anybody in my time. Uh, I had more range than almost anybody that ever played the game uh but the but the uh, uh the stats did not accompany the voting and so that was the part about the gold glove that uh i think i literally got uh, screwed out of a couple of them uh but uh, on the other hand i had a great year in 73 where i made five errors in 74 i came back and had a horrendous year i made like 25 errors and i still won the gold glove because of my reputation from the previous season so you know it kind of worked both ways I guess. In 1973,
1: let me point out to everybody listening in 1973, not only did you only make five errors, but you played in 162 games.
2: I played in every game. That's true. I played in every game. Um, 162 games. And one spell there between 72 and halfway through 74. I played about 385 consecutive games before I took a, took a game off. I finally worked my way into the starting lineup with Weaver. I, you know, I was my player of the year in 1971. In 1972, I didn't play for the first 30 games of the season. And uh, I thought that once I, start, once I played that 31st game, I said, you know what, I'm never getting out of the lineup because he might not put me back in.
1: <laughs> well, they had a pretty good second baseman when you first joined the Orioles by the name of Davey Johnson. So you they can't a complain a whole heck of a lot about not playing, although they traded Davey Johnson away than when they saw the abilities of you. That's true. They, they wanted to get me
2: in there someplace, and uh, you're absolutely right. Davey Johnson was a great second baseman, and that's why I sat. Uh, you know, it was tough to break that lineup. I played a little shortstop, too, and they had a fantastic shortstop in Mark Belanger. So you're absolutely right, uh, uh, Kurt, that that, that was a large part of not getting into that lineup early on.
1: Who's winning these Gold Glove Awards, during those years? You know, that's a good question. I think Frank White came on board around 77,
2: 78, 79. You know, I won the award from 73 through 76. Then uh, I became a free agent, and I came over to California, and I went over to shortstop. And, and I also hurt my back. I blew out a disc in my lower back. It took out 80% of my disc between my fourth and fifth lumbar on a, on a back surgery. So I played nine years after that surgery, but uh, I went back over to second base. But from that point on, uh, I, Frank, Wright, Frank White came in, and he was spectacular at second base. Although my stats a couple of those years, uh, especially in 83, I think were better than his. But uh, that's okay. And also, I'll tell you one of the news that I'm bitter about. I'm getting about the fact that he played on carpet. I don't care what you say. You can say anything you want to me. I will argue until I'm blue in the face that if you play half your season on carpet, you will definitely have an advantage when it comes to fielding percentage, bad hops, et cetera, et cetera. Now, it will hurt your range. You will not get to a goal, but your errors in your fielding percentage you will definitely undoubtedly be in the shadows of the we much better than somebody who plays on dirt and grass, particularly in the 60s and 70s, well, 70s, when you and I played, when the, the, the grass was all different and every infield was different and it was very tough to play on some of those
1: fields. He played on good astroturf, too, in Kansas City because there were some bad astroturf in some of the ballparks around Major League Baseball because I got to play in both the National and the American League, and there was some bad astroturf in places like Houston. There was some bad AstroTurf in Cincinnati, and there was some pretty bad AstroTurf in Pittsburgh, especially around the bases. But the AstroTurf that was at uh, Kansas City's ballpark uh, in Kansas City was fabulous. I mean, it really was. It gave you good true hops all the time. And you know what? I'm glad you pointed that out because even though I thought about that as far as people getting gold gloves, I never realized that you could attribute so much of it. To having eighty-one games on turf opposed to having possibly one hundred and sixty-two games on a dirt infield,
2: right? Exactly. I mean, uh, I, I just think that's, uh, it's, that it's you know almost comparing apples and oranges uh, to a certain degree. You know, my feeling is even though those asterisks fields that you're talking about Houston, Cincinnati, and uh, Philadelphia whatnot that were you know quote unquote bad um, uh, I think bad asterisk was still uh, as good as uh, the best dirt and grass infield, okay? And then if you, if you played on a bad dirt and grass infield, oh, my God. I mean, I, when, here's a true story. I came down in 77, and uh, I started playing. And I played one year and blew my back up. Went over at second base at 78. And we used to have that red brick clay, and it would get real, real hard. I mean, it would, it would get dried out, and it would turn into, like, literally brick. It was brick dust, but it would turn into brick on Sunday day games in particular. And the city of Anaheim had the maintenance crew, and the angels didn't maintain it. So they had city employees that were doing it. I brought Red Patterson down out of the office. Now, I said, Red, I want to show you something. I was wearing a mouth guard. I took my – Oh, I went to a, 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 a Kenny Sporting Goods, and I got a mouthpiece that the football players wear. I started wearing a mouthpiece in my mouth every single game because I knew I was going to get my teeth knocked out. I took him out to second base. I held the ball waist high. I held the ball waist high. I dropped the ball on the infield. It bounced up higher than where I was holding the ball, where I dropped it. And it went back and bounced to the right. Then I said, watch this red. I moved up about a foot. I took the ball, I held it waist high. I dropped it again and it bounced directly to the left, the exact opposite direction, higher than where I was holding the ball from where I dropped it from. You can't even hardly do that on concrete. But that's a true story. And and uh, it was so hard. It was so dangerous. And I told him, I said, Red, you're going to hurt somebody. We're going to get our teeth knocked out of here. Sure enough, about a week later, a guy named Macklemore was playing third base. He got a bad hop. He got two teeth knocked out at third base. He was trying to backhand the ball. He right in the mouth. He was out for the rest of the season. I
1: remember him. And then
2: fin- yeah, and then finally Red went and called the city, and they got some. They got some dirt on it, sort of. But uh, anyway, that was the field I played on 78 through about 82, 83. Then Doug DeSense came over from Baltimore, and they always had the great Duke infield over there in Baltimore. And Doug came to Anaheim in 82. He whined and complained, and I said, yeah. I said, glory, hallelujah, man. I need somebody else to scream at the front office for me. So he and I went up and we talked to uh, Buzzy Bavesi and we begged him to get some dirt. And so they finally brought in some, just some, you know, earth, some brown earth. And we finally got that red brick clay dust out of there, but I had to have another guy go in there and scream with me. So we finally got it done.
1: Well, we're, we're going to continue to talk about the mouth guard in a couple more minutes, but I want to go back to uh, the time of you growing up in Long Beach, California, first round, 19th overall draft choice of the Baltimore Orioles back in 1967, always a California Angel fan. As a matter of fact, a 1956 Ford and Jim Fergosi have something in common. Will you share that with the folks? Of
2: course. Right now, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, right now. Well, okay, okay, I got you. I thought you were going to break or something. Um, yeah, you know, I uh, was a uh, junior in high school when the Anaheim Stadium was built, 1966. And uh, so I had a 56 Ford
0: and uh i would
2: go out to the ball games and and uh and there was a chevron gas station on the corner of uh catella and state college i would park behind the gas station so i could avoid the dollar 50 parking and i'd pop over the fence and i'd run across the parking lot into the game i'd pay about dollar 75 for a ticket and I uh, usually take my girlfriend, and then by the fourth inning, she and I were sitting down in about the fourth row right behind the dugout because you could wheeze your way down. They only had about 8,000 people in the stands. I'd go on, like, on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night when there wasn't very many people there. And then we'd be, like, in the fourth row, and I would just watch Fergosi and uh, Paul Shaw, Aurelio Rodriguez, Bobby Canop. I just watched those guys every move, and I loved that ballpark. And uh, that was my dream was that, man, I just loved playing Anaheim Stadium Sometime I just thought it was the greatest ballpark in the world. And um, the next year, 1967, April, I went out early on in the season. I was playing high school baseball, and there were some scouts following us. And I thought, you know, we, I got a chance to play maybe. We had Eddie Crosby at second base. I was, Eddie Crosby played eight years in the big leagues. I played shortstop. Jeff Burroughs was on the team. He was a pitcher and he was a sophomore. And so the scouts were following Burroughs, me and Eddie Crosby. So we had a bunch of scouts, plus we had a great league. But anyway, I go out to the stadium and they used to have the, um, they used to have these mounds down down the line where the starting pitchers would warm up before the game, you know, real close, like about uh, uh, between third base and the left fielder. So you could go right down the front row and you could be like three feet away from the guy who was pitching that day because he'd be right along that right along the fence. So I went down there and I was standing right there and there was a young pitcher named Jim McLaughlin and he actually had won 18 games the year before or, or he had something like that, 16, 17 games in the big leagues. And so I standing right next to him. He was this red-haired, freckled you know, kid. He was about 26 or 27, but he looked like he was 17 years old. He had a real baby face. And so I'm watching him pitch and I'm seeing this fastball, curveball, slider change and I thought, you know what? I could hit this guy. And that right there at that moment, was my was my thought that, you know, I could actually do this. And uh, that's about uh, about two months later I got drafted, and that's when I decided to,
1: to take up baseball and give it a shot. So you realized you could hit major league pitching before you became a professional?
2: I did. I really did. I really felt, I mean, I was standing right next to him, and I said, this guy won 16 games in the big leagues, and I watched his pitches, and he was, you know, he was throwing, you know, 89-90 with a, just a little hook and a little slider, and I said, you know what? I, I can I can catch up to
1: that, you know. <laughs> so. Well I wish I would have been hanging around you. I think I I think I finally realized I could hit major league pitching maybe four years after I, I got to the big leagues. <laughs> 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 it, it wasn't an easy deal for me. You're listening yeah, to well. Dirty Kurtz Dugout. This is Kurt Bavakwa with my guest, Bobby Gritch. And if you enjoy Dirty Kurtz Dugout and want to support the show, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash. Curp of Aqua. It's the simplest and most direct way to help us produce more and better podcast episodes. Remember, it's independently produced. We're not part of ESPN or any big media company. We work for you, the people that want to listen to the show and want to get good content and have fun. There's all kinds of levels of rewards for Patreon supporters. So go on and check it out. You know what? I don't want to make you out to be a fighter because I know you're not. I mean, I've, no, I've no, spent a I'm lot not. of time with you, but I also read where you got in a fight with Earl Weaver. Well, kind of, sort of, uh, not really a fight. Uh, you know,
2: I, had, I was called up in, uh, in 1970 as a 21-year-old rookie, and uh, I was hitting 383 at AAA. I was on fire. I was really hitting the ball great. I was hitting the ball to right field a lot, hitting the slider to right between the hole between first and second. And the next closest guy was hitting, like, 330. I was leading the league by, like, 50 points or something. I mean, I was on fire. So I come up, and uh, I played one or two games. I was, like, one for six, and he benched me. And uh, and then I didn't play much, and then I played a little bit here. I ended up playing, like, about once every eight or nine days is what it turned out to be. So finally, uh, late in the season, uh, it was, like, about September – 12th or something like that it was like the second week in september and we have a um we have a a set we have a 17 game lead in the american league east with something like 20 games to go something like that and i'm finally starting i'm finally starting a game and we're facing Sonny siebert with boston and i'm hitting like eighth i think it was and my first hit time's up, I hit the ball hard. I hit the ball right on the button, right to somebody twice. And he's pitching a good game, but but now I come up in the bottom of the eighth inning, and the bases are loaded, and there's two outs, and I'm fired up. I knew I'm going to get a base hit and win the game here. I just knew it. I mean, I felt really good about it. So I'm I'm walking up towards home plate from the on-deck circle, and I hear this whistle that Earl Weaver was famous for. He put two fingers between his corners of his mouth, and he'd go, <laughs> And I went, oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding me. I turned around and he's got the wave pulling me back with the wave. And I go, What the heck's going on here? They go, We got a 17-game lead and he's gonna pinch hit for me. And he and he pinched the he and plus he sends up he sends up Chico Simone. Okay, I'm hitting two ten. Chico Simone's hitting two eighteen. Okay, he's not even a left-hand hitter. He's a right-hand hitter, he's hitting two eighteen. I'm hitting two ten. And he. And he pinch hits Chico Simone for me. Of course, Chico Simone struck out on three pitches. But when I came back, I was so mad. I threw my helmet I it into, the, into the helmet rack. I took my bat and I jammed it into the bat rack. And I walked by him as I was going out. And I said, if you don't leave me in the game once in a while, how do you expect me to ever learn how to hit at the big, big level? And he jumped up and he grabs me by the neck. And we went down like three steps down into the table. And and Frank Robinson and Boog Powell were both down there, and they both jumped on. Elrod Hendricks was down there, and they they jumped on him. And somebody jumped on me. I was getting ready to come back at him. Anyway, they pulled us apart. And so that that was really all there was to it. But all there was uh, to it.
1: And you didn't well, talk for how long? <laughs> About three and
2: a half years.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Even amazing. when you got yeah, in an I, elevator together. You didn't oh, talk yeah. after that no, incident yeah. happened. No. But he never we pinched were... hit for you again, I bet. You
2: know what? He did. He did. He pinched it for me. We had a week to go in the season, and we were already clinched. We already clinched the American League East, and the exact same situation came up. And I was on deck, and I'm going up to hit in the bottom of the ninth inning to win a ball game, and he whistles me back. And Brooks Robinson was getting the night off because we had already clinched. And uh, I was actually playing third base for Brooks. And he pinched Brooks Robinson for me, who proceeded to strike out, which didn't know, make me as happy as could be. I was glad he struck out one a few times. I'm glad a teammate struck out, right? But anyway, Brooks Robinson struck out, and I just... I just went unbelievable. This guy is unbelievable. He was just doing it to make a point, so I just put my batman in my, in my away and I put my helmet away and I just you know sat there and just went, you know I don't really care if I ever talk to this guy again either. So you know we didn't talk for about three or four years, but but the thing is that Brooks Robinson when Earl Weaver goes Robinson at the end of the, at the end of the bench you know when he was, everybody told me this later uh, he Brooks you had the night off and he was sitting down at the end of the bench and, and Weaver goes Robinson pinch hit. And Brooksy goes, oh, Earl, let the kid hit. And Earl goes, get up here. <laughs> so, so he didn't want to go pinch hit for me. So Brooksy, he, he had to go up there and pinch it. So anyway, he was just trying to make a point And he just, you know, so I just thought, screw it. You know, and the thing was, here was the deal. Here's the kicker. he, We had a chance to set an all-time American League win record. I think Cleveland Indians in 1954 won 111 games, I think it was. And so we were we were on pace to be right at 111 or 112, if we could play like 800 ball or something for the last you know week of the season. So that's what he was after. He was after the American League all-time win record, and that's why. I, and I figured that out later. I didn't think about it at the time, uh, but that's why he pinched it from me. He wanted to win that game for you know to be the manager to set the all-time American League record. So that that had to be what was going on.
1: Well, you spent quite a few years with uh, Earl and the Baltimore Orioles, but as soon as the advent of free agency came around, you signed a free agent contract with California Angels, Uh, had some injury issues uh, the first couple of years with them. But in 1979, as you pointed out later, when Rod Carew came over, I got to tell you, Bobby, your statistics stand out in that year, and... I'm wondering if you can tell everyone listening and tell me again why you believe that your career actually turned around in 1979 as good as it was before that. Well, in 77,
2: when I came over, I blew out my back. I hurt my back uh, putting in an air conditioner in my window, uh, at my condo in Long Beach. Because, you know, when you play ball, you've got to sleep all day sometimes. You get home at 4 in the morning on a long trip. You've got to sleep till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning uh, in the afternoon. So I needed a, I needed a cool bedroom. And I had to put an conditioner an in, this man, and I did, and I hurt my back lifting it. I, I actually herniated a disc. In, uh, February twelfth, Valentine's Day, during the winter. I'll never forget it long as I live. So anyway, um, it didn't get any better. I go to spring training, my back's hurting me. Uh, I try to play. Uh, uh, anyway, but the long, long story short, uh, I played fifty games that year. I had to have back surgery in July. I came back in nineteen seventy-eight, and I was hurting. I was bad. The doctor told me, he said, "Bobby, you have." you have about a 50% chance of playing baseball again after my surgery. This is 1977. The scar on my back is probably about four inches long. The scar now that they do is about a, is about three quarters of an inch long. So this is back when they really cut you wide open and they had to get in there and, you know, really get the shove, pick and shovel and all that stuff. and really you know, really get into it. So it was before arthroscopic surgery, but anyway, so I, 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 you know, there was a good chance my career was going to be over with my back, but, um, So, 78, I came back, I had a horrible, year. I was real weak. I had no bat speed. I didn't have any strength because I sat out for a long time. And um, I hit like, I mean, I barely hit uh, 245 or something. It's only because I had a good September. I was hitting like 225 most of the year. I think I had six home runs, 40 RBIs. I mean, I I was finished. I was done. And so, I had to do something drastic that winter. And this was before weight training was accepted in baseball. Everybody said, "No, you're going to get muscle bound. Don't don't lift weights." But you know what? I had no I had no other recourse. It was some I had to get myself stronger somehow, and otherwise I was done. And so I turned a bedroom, one of my bedrooms at home, I turned into a weight room. And this is before anybody was doing this. And I I put in a barbell. I put I had some dumbbells. I had some lead weights. I had some I had lead weights. I had two donuts on a bat, and I had a I had a cut off bat with a huge big piece of lead on it, for just one-handed swings, and I had a mirror to stand in front of. So anyway, every single day for five months, I was in there twice a day, and the one thing I really found out was that my left arm was very weak. My lead arm was really weak. I was a football player, quarterbacks. My right arm was strong. My left arm was really weak, so I started working out and blah, blah, blah. Make Another long story short, I really increased the strength of my lead arm. I was doing like 15 reps with a 15-pound dumbbell when I started. I was doing 45 reps with a 35-pound dumbbell by, by February 15th when it was time to leave for spring training. I go to spring training, and Jeff Zahn was pitching the very first day, and he threw to me, and I hit rockets all over the field, and his eyes got as big as freaking saucers, and he came over to me, and he said, oh, my God. He said, what did you do all winter? And I showed him the forearm on my left arm, and, and this muscle on my left arm was like bulging out of my skin. I had, like, veins popping out of my forearm. He goes, oh, my God. He goes, you look like Popeye. Anyway, that year, the second thing happened is that we were in uh, Kansas City, and I was standing around the batting cage, and Rod Carew had just joined us. And I saw the stats before the game, and, and he – I couldn't hit Quisenberry. I was hitting, like, 080 off Quisenberry, and Carew was hitting 380. And before the game at Batting I said, Rod, I said, how do you hit Quisenberry?" he says, what do you mean? I said, I can't hit him to save my life. He says, where are you looking? I said, I don't know. I'm just kind of looking. He's a side armor. He goes, no, he's not a side armor. He said he throws four inches off of his right knee. You need to look exactly where the ball's coming from. And I went, oh, my God. Nobody I'm 30 years old. I'm 30 years old, and nobody's ever told me that. I've been playing baseball for, uh, you know, 25 years, uh, you know, 20, 22 years, right? And he says, you need to draw a box where the ball's coming from and see it out of his hand. And so uh, where you have to zero in on it. So I did that that night off of Christmas. I don't remember what I did exactly. I think I got a hit. All I know is that the ball looked like a beach ball coming at me. And I went, that is incredible. So I employed that tip from Rod Carew. And I had the strength from my lifting weights for five months during the winter every single day that I went on to hit 30 home runs. I hit 292. My slugging percentage was like 565 or something, and I had 101 RBIs. I mean, I was hitting eighth. I hit eighth all season with those numbers. So it was – and then for the rest of my career, from that point on, I had good numbers, good slugging percentage, good LBIs, good home runs. So those two things – so that's when weight training started. Right? Brian Downing started lifting weights, and then it started catching on. When I broke in the big leagues, when you and I broke in the big leagues, Kurt, there was not a single weight room anywhere in any baseball ballpark anywhere. Well, By the that's time, for sure. I was, I was, by the time I retired in '86, every single ballpark had a quarter million dollar weight ring in it. Only 15 years difference, so that's when it started. '78, '79, and that we were the first ones to do it. And then by '86, within seven years, every single ball team, every single ballpark had weight rooms in it, and that, that's when it started.
1: So you, you, uh, you actually say that your lead arm is the yep. one that you strengthened, and you give yep. credit to the tremendous increase in power that you showed the rest of your career, even though, you know, you did pop the ball out of the ballpark uh, a a fairly good amount of times before that, but then the numbers got, they almost doubled. So it was evident that something happened yeah, and you got to be a really, really good hitter because you've always been a confident player you're confident in everything you do and that's one of the things that I really like about hanging around with you because you're the kind of guy that will not lose at anything <laughs> it doesn't matter what you're going to play you're not going to lose and I love it
2: well you know you you've got to be that way to, to persist through the minor leagues don't you you got to be that persistent and you got to be competitive and and you just got to be a grinder, you know. So you're in, the, you're out of the same mode, buddy. There's no, there's no. Everybody in the big leagues is out of the same mode. So that's just the way it is, Bobby. I but, appreciate uh, your time. Yeah, man. I really do. Right. It
1: was, it was good talking to you. I hope to see you uh, real soon. I know you're in the Angels front office now. And well, uh, before you just go, just a, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, well, yeah. what do you do? Okay, what do you do? Well, I, you know, um, I, I'm an
2: alumni, and uh, I helped uh, Kevin Yulik in, in 2002. He was the president of the team. He and I uh, did some things. He, he called me in one day. He and I had had a conversation earlier when I was a player uh, about what the Angels lacked as an organization. And One of those things was uh, unity and 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 uh, and, and uh, connecting the eras and the legacy of the organization. Players would come and go; you never see them again. So anyway. So I helped form an alumni association, which we have about 600 guys in now with the alumni, and we do all kinds of events. Guys go down to spring training now. We had eight guys go down this year for a little four-day visit. I can go on and on and on. But to make a long story short, I'm just kind of an alumni on call. I do a lot of appearances for them and just PR and community relations.
1: Wow. This sounds absolutely nothing like the San Diego Padre Alumni Association. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, will, I will leave you with that. But before right. before you go. Is Shohei Ohtani real? Do what? Is Shohei Ohtani real? Oh, Shohei Ohtani. Oh, I tell you, he's exciting to
2: watch. Oh, I mean, isn't uh, he? Uh, he really is. It's fun. It's fun again. The game is fun. I mean, between Trout, Pujols, Ohtani, I mean, those three guys, uh, I love having Kinsler and on the team now. Upton's terrific. I mean, really have an exciting team now, um, I'm checking out games. If I don't go at the stadium, which I go to probably be about a quarter of the games. Done, I'm checking it out on TV. I tape it. Check it out at night. Looking, I'm looking at my phone all the time. See how we're doing. But Otani is um, a, a, a really a, a a budding young star. He's six four, about two twenty five. He's fluid. He's athletic. He throws. Uh, he can hit ninety eight. He's got a devastating forkball. He's got a great curveball. When he's throwing his curveball and his fork ball and he's keeping it low. And he's throwing his 96 to 98 fastball. I mean, he struck out 11 guys in six and a third innings the other the other day, and something or 12 guys, something like that. And um, uh, he's he's tremendous. I mean, one, one last thing on that, I went to spring training this year for a little four day uh, cameo appearance, like like a lot of the other alumni within our organization did, and I saw him play. And he had a really big front leg kick, you know, like uh, like um, Ichiro. You know, like the old Oh, remember Sadao? Oh, oh yeah, the all-time, the all-time home run hitter from Japan back in the and the seventies. He had a big mass. He lifted his front leg way, way up. Anyway, so that's what uh, Shohei was doing, and they were beating him inside. I mean, he could. He was only hitting. I don't know. He was hitting a hundred, a hundred at spring training. So, I think the last week or so, he made a huge adjustment where he didn't even lift up his front foot at all. All he did was lift up his heel of his front foot. And put it down and swing so that he was not getting beat inside. And uh, he has been hitting tremendously. He's getting to the ball inside. He's got power to the opposite field. He runs well. And uh, one other thing on this, I was sitting next to our weight trainer, uh, you know, speaking of weights, uh, during spring training, and, I, and he was up. He's kind of a slender kid. I said to our weight trainer, I said, Do we have him on a good weight program? And the guy looked at me and he goes, What? I go, What, what? He said, He is a beast in the weight room i go he is he said he's the second strongest kid on the team next to mike trout he said he's in there two hours a day pounding weights he said wow. he's he's tremendously dedicated he's the second strongest guy on our team and he and he's uh you know he connects he can i think hit the balls about 4 30 in spring training during batting practice 4 30 and um you know he's got anyway. I think he's got uh, some really good stuff, some really great talent, and it's going to be exciting to have him around. And I, I just uh, you know think it's just been an awesome addition to our organization.
1: Well, everybody in Southern California is keeping an eye on him because, naturally, uh, the San Diego Padres were one of the last teams that were uh, yeah. vying for Shohei Otani's services when he signed with the Angels. But uh, I'm glad he's doing good. I mean, he's only hitting .348, and he's 3-1 as a pitcher with, like you said, Devastating stuff, so it's fun to watch. And let's catch a ball game one of these days together, Bobby. That sounds good, Kurt. Let me know when you want to come up, bud. You got it. I appreciate it. Our guest, Bobby Gritch, Episode 8 of Dirty Kurt's Dugout. You know, Mark Eisenberg, author of the Money Players blog, wrote, all professional baseball players should keep in mind that they'll be active voting members of the Players Association for just a few years, but they'll be retired players for decades. Well, we're going to talk about that in episode nine, where we're also going to have Lifer Baseball, Renee Latchman, former manager, former coach for years, my f- former manager down in Puerto Rico, which is one of the big reasons that we're going to get these guys together that I'm going to tell you about right now. Ron LaFleur, if you remember that name, Detroit Tiger Great, Jose Morales. Montreal Expo, great National League pinch hitter and coach. And Jim Dwyer, a great American League baseball player with the Baltimore Orioles. We were all teammates for a couple of years in Mayaguez, Puerto Rico. Renee Latchman was our manager. We're going to have all those guys on Episode 9 of Dirty Kurtz Dugout. So keep an eye out, tune in, and the best way to get it, go to Patreon. That's right patreon.com slash Kurt Bavacqua. Visit our page and support us. Everybody, thank you for listening. We will talk to you very, very soon, and good night to
0: all. We're talking baseball. Klazowski, Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby fella the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque. Especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke Well, Casey was winning Hank Aaron was beginning One Robbie going out